Welcome to Keys to Winning, a podcast where we talk about government contracting topics such as proposal development, business development, win strategies, and more. Keys to Winning, produced by AOC Key Solutions, a leading bid and proposal development firm, gives you a chance to learn from leaders and experts in their fields. I'm Raymond Thibodeau, today's host of Keys to Winning. Risk comes in many flavors, program risk, schedule risk, transition risk, etc., When bidding on a federal proposal, an RFP often asks for a risk management plan and a description of risks and how you plan to mitigate them. Sounds simple enough, but there are factors that need to be considered when addressing risk in your technical section and other sections. Luckily, we have Mike Cushman, a risk specialist and a key solutions associate, to talk us through the process of identifying risks and beyond. Mike, thanks for being on the podcast. Hi, Ray. Pleased to be here. First of all, you've handled risk identification and mitigation, let's just say risk management, for some fairly big clients, British Petroleum, Shell, Exxon, and others. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with that? Sure. In fact, working for very large oil and gas companies has given me different insight into federal government procurement, uh, particularly when it comes to, to risk management particularly the level of rigor that folks in different industries, such as oil and gas or airline industry, for example, um, just different industries bring different perspectives. And and that's kind of what I was going to talk to you about today. I like the idea that uh, I have worked for these companies where risk is is taken seriously, which kind of leads me to the the next question. Most companies measure risk on a three-by-three or five-by-five matrix. Some companies you've worked for are much more detailed about their risks which stands to reason since there's more at stake. Can you describe the difference in the way risk is handled in, say, the oil and gas industry as opposed to the typical federal contractor? Absolutely. In its bare essence, it's about rigor. By that, I mean it's the definition behind the process that gives you confidence that the process is going to work. And by that, I mean you've got a situation where you may have a several billion dollar project, which can be similar to some government programs. But in the, the oil and gas industry, uh, for example, think about the things that can go wrong. You can have uh, big environmental disasters, as, as we've heard about in recent years. You can have uh, multiple fatalities. You can have very significant multi-million dollar cost overruns. So the rigor behind their risk management process is to define the risks around these potential consequences. And by that, they'll add definitions to environmental damage. They'll add definitions to cost and schedule overruns. They'll add definitions to health and safety. And by that, it, that measurement, when you talked about a three by three or a, or a five by five, you know, I've seen companies that use an eight by eight or a 10 by 10, and that allows them to add a lot of specificity along the, the impact parameters, not just for cost, but like I said, it could be health, safety, environmental, schedule, et cetera. If you have a low impact with a low likelihood of occurrence, that might be a green level risk. A medium and a medium may be a yellow level risk, and a high and a high might get you into some red categories under three by three. Same thing with a five by five or however many columns of definition you have. You and I have talked before about a process or a cycle, more like, with six or seven clearly defined steps for identifying, assessing, and tracking risk. Can you elaborate on it a little bit? Sure. Uh, a, a typical seven-step process. Risk planning, risk identification, risk assessment, risk response, monitoring and control, and then learning and closure, and then governance. 
so risk planning would be to, to have a process in place. The process in place explains how you're going to get the right people in the room, that you have your information identified. We talked about the risk matrix, for example. Likewise, to the impacts, you would have your likelihood of occurrence explained as well for, for the various low, medium, high, or however many definitions you would have. So when you have that planning together, then you, you go to the next step, which is risk identification. Again, it depends on what you're talking about in, in your proposal. If you're talking about your risk process, then you would explain the risk identification. If you're, if you're talking about getting risk for a specific section, such as the transition section, for example, or the project management section, you might have a different audience in the group. By audience, I mean, do you need to have an HR rep in there? Do you need to have a QA rep? Do you need to have project managers, your, your technical experts? Is this an IT project you're talking about? Is it a construction project you're talking about? So the risk identification session is, is really where you the folks in the room and you really want to capture these risks. And I, I think that a lot of folks will just start with a list of issues and concerns and then call that your risk. And what I'm preaching here is that you take a little bit more rigor and by asking yourselves a set of questions such as what is the risk impact? That's what most people think of as the risk, but what caused that risk? And what were the consequences? Did it lead to uh, additional cost, rework, schedule delays. So the impact is what goes into that matrix we talked about earlier. That may either help us to avoid the risk or should the risk take place, hopefully it would have less of an impact because we plan in advance. And, and all of this feeds into your risk register. And that's where the monitoring and control takes place. Those, those uh, mitigations we talked about, if they're just our quality control plan addresses this, that's not as hard hitting as Ray is going to do this action by this due date. And if you track those in your either your regular risk meetings, your client meetings, your project meetings, et cetera, you've got a bit more rigor behind it. It becomes part of your program management philosophy. And then you learn from that because as you go on and repeat contracts, if it's small, small contracts, if you do several smaller ones, you would learn from each one and you can document your risk the same way you would do with your lessons learned and best practices, for example. And then governance is really uh, the seventh step is, is tying it into your philosophy of your business and making this a part of your, your project management approach, making it part of if you bring this level of rigor and put it into a page or two in your proposal where it's called for, demonstrating that you take this seriously and you have a, a solid industry best practice process behind methodology to your risk management, you're bringing value to your client. So hopefully that didn't uh, take too long to explain that, but that's a thorough description of that cycle and the steps involved in that. So that's good. You know, often during a proposal, if it's a requirement, a proposal, a proposal team will cobble together a risk table for their solution. And it seems to be more like a list of issues and concerns. It feels cursory, almost like we need a risk table. Anybody know of any risks? I'm exaggerating, of course, but some companies, as you've mentioned, take risk very seriously. Why is it important to have the right people in the room when defining risks and strategies for mitigating them? Well, any risk that's identified is as good as the people that were identifying the risk. If you're lucky and you've got a seasoned government contracting professional that happened to have been a, either a contracting officer or a contracting manager for 30 years, you're probably going to get fantastic advice. If you're not so lucky, the best thing to do is get many skilled people together. 
So you should get your proposed project manager in there. You should get your proposed transition manager in there, or your proposed quality manager. There is often resistance by some companies to mention some risks or to have maybe too big a risk table, as if uh, that would tip off the government to weaknesses uh, in your solution that it might not have considered otherwise. It's as if some risks need to stay hidden from the customer. Is there some truth to that? Well, I, I know you've seen it, and I've seen it before as well. So I, I think that that's something that's sort of the fear of the unknown. I think the open, honest approach is the best. But certainly, there there's some folks that are like, okay, if we do too good a job in identifying risk, it looks like we're really not prepared for this contract, or we're really worried, or we're really some some negative connotation to risk management. And uh, you know, people have this. <laughs> This artificial uh, thing where they just say six sounds like the right number of risks I'd like to propose. No more than eight, certainly. Definitely not 10 or 12. Oftentimes, we're we're not going to win those arguments with our clients, but we can educate them on the process. We can explain to them that it doesn't necessarily mean it's a weakness of our part. It, It means it's an acknowledgement of the risk. Some companies and government agencies, for that matter, distinguish between issues and risks to indicate issues that haven't risen to the level of a risk. Can you explain what that distinction is? So from my experience, a lot of folks will just very bluntly say, look, that laundry list of issues you have, that's your day job. That doesn't need to be reported because, quite frankly, that's that's why we pay you, right? That list of, of things that you're, you're concerned about, you should be concerned about it because that's your day job. Again, going back to the rigorous process, if you were to put the things that are on your day-to-day issues list and rank them, do they all come out green? It's okay to have some green risks. Some people say, I don't want to know about it if it's that low. This might be an obvious question, but how and why do you document and track risks besides the fact that some contracts require it? Shouldn't companies be doing this as a matter of course? I would certainly hope so, Ray. I think that if you're going to track lessons learned and best practices, this kind of goes hand in hand, particularly if a risk takes place. It's good to know when you do uh, an after-action review, for example, what did you think beforehand? Did, did this come up in conversations? Did we know that this could happen? Did we think about it? Did we dismiss it? Or did we say it, it could be caused by the following things? And then we had eight mitigation items to address those things. By having all this documented and in a, a living register of both open risks and previously closed or addressed risks, and it's good to be able to come back to it. Very practical advice and probably a good note to end on. Thanks, Mike, for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Hey, Ray, thanks a lot, and I look forward to working with you again in the near future. And we'll close there. I'm Raymond Thibodeau, and this has been Keys to Winning from AOC Key Solutions Incorporated, or KSI a consulting firm that has helped companies across the country win billions of dollars in federal contracts. Learn more at www.aockeysolutions.com or follow us on LinkedIn. Be sure to subscribe for more podcasts in this series and thank you for listening.